What are you doing? How are you? Hi again, everybody. It's me, Jair Man. Welcome to your Life's Work podcast. I am your official official. Greetings to all of you around the world. I hope you all okay. Uh, I missed two weeks. And I missed two weeks because some sadist reached into my mouth and yanked out four very impacted wisdom teeth. And they were buried in there, man. I'm talking like deep, like within the earth's crust of gumness. They were, they were in there. You know, I woke up twice during the oral surgery. Apparently redheads have some weird... I'm a redhead, by the way. Apparently redheads have some weird thing when it comes to anesthesia. And so I popped up like twice during the, 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 the surgery and like there's a guy like on top of me, like, you know, like literally like a pitchfork, like digging these things out of my mouth. Massive trauma. I'm 51 for those of you who think I'm 20 because I look so damn good. And, but I mean, here's the deal. Like I go into the, the surgeon guy because it, it all started like a month ago because my teeth started to hurt in the back. And like, yes, yes, I hear you. When I was 15, somebody told me to get them out. Okay. Yes, I hear you. Self-will run riot. That's exactly what it is. I was like, no way. I've seen other people that have this. It looks like it's painful. I run from pain, period, end of story, whether it's physical or emotional, I'm out. <laughs> As you are too, man. Don't be screwing with me. That's all there is to it. I didn't have a very dominant family life. You know, like my mother wasn't on top of me, neither was my dad. So it was like, oh, you need to get your wisdom teeth out? Yeah. And then like, the, you, know, the, you know, somebody reached for a drink and then that conversation was over. So uh, the guy looks at me a month ago and says, man, you need those things out. So I go and he's like, yo, if you don't, your face is going to blow up. And uh, so I went to the oral surgeon. The first thing the guy tells me is, well, at your age, you know, and this is a guy, by the way, he's like 30. He's like 6'2", blonde hair, tan, fantastic teeth, ripped bicep. This looks great. Everybody in his office is hot. And they're all five seven, six feet, and they're all gorgeous. And it's a contemporary office with like espresso in the. Who the hell's having an espresso while you're waiting to have some guy dig out your face? You know what I mean? I mean, this is the kind of place. This is Southern California. It's Southern, it's Southern California. Back east, it would have been like a gray waiting room with folding chairs and a piece of paper on a clipboard. You know what I mean? And some sixty-year-old woman behind the counter, like yelling at you not to put your feet up on the table. Anyways, that's where I've been. <laughs> it was hell, man. It was two weeks of hell. I literally could not talk, could not eat. I lost 13 pounds. I lost 13 pounds. Uh, I, it, it was horrible. I have pictures of the teeth. Anybody wants it, text me, hit me on the Instas and, uh, and the interwebs, and I'll send you pictures of the teeth because holy crap, man, I'm telling you, it was, they're just incredible. So uh, that's my story. And, here, and here's the other thing. Like, people make fun of like, the wisdom teeth. Like, this is like, okay. Like, oh, look, put up the picture, put up the video of the kids in the car driving home from the dentist, like, talking like they're crazy. Like, this is the experience of wisdom teeth in America. I'm telling you, that's not, we're all lying to one another. This is the, the most horrible, heinous act you can do to another human being is rip these things out of your mouth all at once. So if you're 50 and you're in, if you're in your 40s and you're in your 50, here's the tip of the day. I don't care what I say from here on out. Tip of the day. If, if you're in your 40s and your 50s and some guy's saying, take the teeth out, do them one at a time. Do it a year at a time. <laughs> Let this process be over the course of four years because it was hell. I'm just starting to feel good. So missing two season, missing two weeks means, hey, do I start another season of the big podcast? Roll this into season three? No. 
screw it. We're still in season two. Um, relax. I'll, I'll start a new season when we get cl- closer into summer. But uh, today we're going to be uh, today. I'm going to tell a very tragic story. With all that intro, I'm going to tell a super super tragic story. Um, and uh, and just embrace yourself. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read a little bit of the scriptures in Luke. So buckle up if you're not a Jesusy person. Just just relax and sit down. I'm going to tell you a story out of Luke. You're going to enjoy it. Um, and if you're a Jesus y person, uh, you want to listen anyways because uh, maybe I'll screw it up. A <laughs> uh, couple bits of news. Um, so uh, I worked on a book last year in 2017. It's not a regular chapter book, it's basically a contemplation. It's 365 pages of wonderful meditative thought. Um, contemplation. It, it, it's really, really great stuff. And it's something that I worked on every single day of 2017. Um, I only missed a couple days with it. it. Basically in 2017, when I, when I rolled out, when I left television and I rolled into this life, uh, spiritual directing, mentoring, coaching, whatever the hell it is, whatever title you want to put on me, um, guy who hears your life's situations and helps, um, guy who's can figure stuff out very quickly and easily, whatever. Um, I, but I wrote every single day and I studied every single day and I really made a, a commitment to myself. It was more to me. I made a commitment to myself that I was really going to look in, man, like really take a deep dive on what I believe, what I think, um, how I see the universe at, at large. And I did that all through kind of the, a Jesus goggles or, or, or if you will, a Christian perspective, if you will, um, all with the idea of oneness attached to it, meaning that, you know, truth over there is truth over here, meaning if the Buddha's got truth that matches up with the truth over there, well, then freaking put it in the bag and make sure it happens. Um, and, and that's exactly what I did. So the book's coming out. It's in the design phase right now. The title of the book is called Year. And uh, my designer, my best friend, my wonderful compadre, Rob Supan, who's one of the best designers in the world, and if you need him, I don't know, what is he, supan.com or robsupan.com? I don't know, something, we'll figure that out. Uh, but if you need design, he's the guy. Um, literally one of the best designers that I've ever I've ever met. But it's in his hot little hands right now, and I know he's going to come up with something uh, fantastic. So um, I kind of put a, a dualistic nature, uh, not a dualistic nature, I kind of put like a, a partnership on the project, like my words, thoughts, meditative understanding, contemplative understanding, and then Rob's kick-ass design. So that's coming. We'll let you know when uh, we publish and then we put it out uh, for purchase. No idea how much it will cost right now, um, but we'll figure all that stuff out. We are working um, we, behind the scenes. Here's something exciting. We are working on a, on a live internet show. Um, and the live internet show has like a crew and a studio to it, and it's going to be pretty freaking cool. Um, I have, believe it or not, I have a, a group of TV wonderful people in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm in San Diego, for those of you who don't know me. Um, and I have a bunch of television people who have a studio in Cleveland, and it's an internet-capable digital studio, and it's pretty amazing. It's freaking amazing. And... Um, he can port me in from my garage and literally do the television production from Cleveland. So we're going to light up a live show. That's going to be great. It'll probably be a 30-minute show. Uh, it'll probably be a Q&A uh, live on Facebook and live everywhere else where uh, you can ask me uh, whatever the hell you want to ask me, uh, whether it's uh, about your emotional state 
your theological premises, uh, your universal understandings, your relationship problems, your addictions, whatever it is, your happiness, your joy. doesn't have to be about sorrow. Just because you're talking to me doesn't mean you're admitting that you're a horrible person. That's not it. Um, Lately, I've been posting a lot about um, why I believe in you. And just a, a quick point of reference for me, like it, it really did occur to me, I had kind of a revelation the other day um, that I really believe in you, man. I believe in you. Like you're listening to me right now. I believe in you. I, I don't for a minute think you are unaware or not conscious of what is happening in your life. Not, not for a second. And the, the reason I make that judgment or understanding is because I know we run like hell from our problems. We numb, we ignore, we do everything possible at times to just ignore the pain. And that tells me you are aware. (laughs) So it tells me that confusion, fear, shame, and anger are very much a part of the matriculation of how we take in life and how we live it. So I don't for a minute, man, believe that you're not aware of what's going on. And that's why I believe in you. And I believe that you can learn to love. I believe that you can learn to settle into love and receive it and give it and really um, kind of pin your life on it. So I just wanted to share that with you because it, it it's kind of a revel. And maybe it's a stupid revelation at 51, especially for the guy who calls himself a spiritual director, a mentor, a coach. But it just, man, I was like staring at somebody the other day and I was just like, man, I really believe in this person across from me and it just hit me like a truck that that's how I look at you I look at you like when when we get together and we do this work um, when we do your life's work in other words when we sit and we really hold each other accountable to get through seasons of life where no matter what the hell they are it doesn't matter if it's good or bad like I truly believe in your ability to learn um, how to love, how to receive love, because that's our biggest deal. Our biggest deal is man taken in love. Other people's, God's, uh, the universe's nature. You know, it's like, when's the last time man yet touched a tree? And I know that may sound effing crazy, but when's the last time you just like really went outside and just like listened to the birds and just sat in it and just really understand how much the universe, the world, the earth is like craving relationship with you, not to mention the people in your life. Not to mention the people in your life. Don't forget people, man. People text you, text them back. If people write you, write them back. If they call you, call them back. If people are wanting your attention, regardless of what is happening, give it to them. I get people suck your energy at times. I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna say don't take a break every now and then, because you can. But I'm just gonna say take in that love. So you know, I just wanted to express that uh, to you. Now uh, we're gonna go at least 45 minutes today, just so you know. There's a guy here in San Diego, dear friend of mine. Um, he uh, he's a t- he's a TV guy, and I love this guy. And he rides his bike, but he doesn't ride his bike like any other guy. Like how I ride my bike, like once every five years. This guy rides his bike like he's his bike is like Lance Armstrong's bike or some something, you know. And he's got like the the, the outfit and like he puts like a GoPro on it, you know. He's like that guy. He's the guy that when you're driving and like you drive up on him and like you know you go, oh man, that guy, that guy got up today and he's only thinking about biking. So apparently he rides his bike and there's like some 45 minute path. <laughs> so he's like, hey, make the podcast uh, 45 one time. So I, I don't I don't go dark <laughs> while listening. Um, hey, I believe in you, too. So so I believe in you. Coffee, please. 
Okay, the story I'm going to tell today, man, is a story that is like super personal to me. And and for the record, I started this podcast a couple times and literally deleted it because this story is that kind of tragic and sorrowful in my life. Super heavy, emotional. I've written about this story before. I uh, spoke at a church not too long ago where I told this story, um, and it's supercharged, man. It's like a real hard one to tell because it involves my unwillingness at times to go all in with people. And so it challenges me, it makes me look at myself, it makes me understand the judgments that I have on, 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 on people that I don't think are doing you know, whatever it is that I think they need to be doing. So uh, in a lot of ways, I'm telling on myself on this story. And in a lot of ways, I'm exposing what suffering is and what happens when people suffer and what happens um, to a suffering life, what happens to a life that's, uh, um, you know, lived in addiction and lived in abuse um, and just lived in tragedy. I first want to read a, a quote to you by Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr is a a Franciscan Catholic uh, monk guy who operates a really cool kind of retreat contemplation center in the middle of the desert. Uh, not in the middle of the desert, really. <laughs> I set it up like he's some hermit. Um, he's just a good guy. He writes a lot of books. It's Richard Rohr. His last name is R-O-H-R, Richard. Uh, go ahead and do the Googles on him and get to know him. Read his books, man. Uh, they will open you up, I guarantee you, particularly those of you who are coming out of tribal Christianity process-driven methodology, stupid ass, like, if you don't do this, you won't go to heaven Christianity, uh, Richard uh, will open your mind up and kind of blow your mind over there. So particularly for those of you who do that. And for those of you who can't stand religion at all, Richard's still your guy. Richard's still your guy. Just because he's a Franciscan and a monk dude, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of dudes out there, man, that are, that are you know, really, really kind of love God, but get that love is the central theme, <laughs> the central theme to all things spiritual, um, and not just, uh, you know, hey, do your, do your time so you can uh, get into the pearly gates, which at the end of the day is all garbage. Now, here's the quote. This is from Richard Rohr. He says, suffering of some sort seems to be the only thing strong enough to both destabilize and reveal our arrogance, our separateness, and our lack of compassion. I define suffering very simply as whenever you are not in control. Suffering is the most effective way whereby humans learn to trust, allow, and give up control to another source. I wish there were a different answer. And he goes on to say, he says, but Christ reveals on the cross both the, both the path and the price of full transformation into the divine. And obviously, he uses Jesus there as a, as just a way of of under, un, understanding suffering uh, and tr and trans and transformation into something. Um, you know, it's like it's like it's just like you know polishing that diamond a little bit. You know, and I don't know why I say polishing that diamond. It 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 really is the understanding that at times we will suffer, or we will be involved in suffering or sorrow. And we will come to learn that we have a new reliance on something other than just that or the situation that has made suffering. So I love that quote. And with that quote, uh, I just want you to keep in mind as we go forward. Okay, so the story I want, the, 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 I want to kind of break down two things. 
the story I'm going to tell, I want to preface it with this story in Luke, um, because I really do think this story in Luke kind of sets us up on just being all in on people. And when I say being all in on people, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have boundaries. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a real good understanding of what personal responsibility is to your community, to your family, and to yourself when it comes to time and energies that we pour into other people, because there are. Um, I'm not just saying you lay open and bare and you know you become a doormat for people. That's not it. When I talk about being all in, I talk about the recognition of who we all are in, as humans and that we all have the same crap spinning around inside of us, period, end of story. We, you know, Some of us can play piano real good and some of us can bike around San Diego better than others. I think you hear me. Some of us can, you know, my God, I mean, some of us are mathematicians and then some of us are really great mechanics. So I, I get the individual talents of everybody, but it, deeply ingrained in all of us is that really want and desire and need to be loved and receive love and then give love. So that's the premise when we get all in on people is that we look at human beings and we see an empathetic understanding. We see that we are all very similar and that, uh, that the love of God has so much to do with how we come together. And the only truly way that we get that, y'all, is in community with one another. You can go be a hermit. You can go you know, be a guru up on top of the mountain by yourself. But I'm telling you, without that presence of community in receiving and in love with one another and really truly being all in on, on, on each other that way, you're not going to get the full shot. And sure, you can if you're a monk and you're cloistered in your little abbey, you can come talk to me about that, but I'll have very little patience to listen to it um, because I really, really, over the course of time, have just really come to understand that if you don't have community around you uh, and you don't have that empathetic view and that understanding of how humans are really orchestrated and walking through their lives, what we're afraid of, what we're angry about, what we're ashamed of... Um, we, we need that with one another, man. That's all there is to it. Okay, so here's the story in Luke. This is Luke 7 for all of you playing at home. Luke 7 for all of you playing at home. Um, I'm going to set it up by, this is Jesus going to dinner at a Pharisee's house. So Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come to my house for dinner. At the time, the Pharisees are the religious leaders. They are also the people that drive power and position and culture and economics and political bullshit. They are the people that really hold in their culture at the time, in their community at the time, the power. And as a result, most of them live very well. If you were Jesus and you were going to this guy's house, you probably entered, you know, into the neighborhood through a gate, you know, and the finely trimmed lawns and everybody had a nice car in the driveway. And, you know, you probably had a, a servant or two helping you out and their house was painted and nice. You probably had all the right furniture and all the right, uh, you know, you know, silverware and nice art hanging on your walls and everything was spick, spick and spam. And not only does he invite Jesus, but this Pharisee also invites his other Pharisee friends. He invites all his like-minded, political, economic, you know, high rollers in the community friends. And and he's doing them under one auspice to catch Jesus, to, 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 to really go, you, you are a fraud. You're not who you say you are. At the time, Jesus had this massive fame, right? He's walking around the planet doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and people are recognizing him, and he's saying stuff that is going absolutely countercultural to what was happening during the day. He was looking back at, at, at religious leaders and political leaders and, and, and rulers and going, no, man, it's this way. Don't, don't. He was, he, and then he's looking back at the people going, hey, love your enemies. 
Don't hurt your enemies. Hey, 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 give to the poor. Hey, hey, do everything you can for another. This, this was this guy rocking the boat. So Simon says, come on over, have a dinner with us. And Jesus gets it. Jesus knows he's walking into something stupid. He gets it, but he goes. And that's what Jesus does. He gets invited. He comes. That's how it goes. I love that about him. It says, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Back in the day, you wouldn't sit at the table. You reclined at the table. Tables were low to the ground. There'd be cushions or pillows around the table. Uh, and you'd literally re- re- you know, recline. Imagine if I invited you up to Fallbrook. <laughs> hey, come over to the house for dinner. And then we all reclined around the table and ate, you know, and ate manwiches. It says, a woman in, in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now that sentence is loaded. That's <laughs> loaded. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. At the time, good people, we are, well, well we're to assume that this is Mary Magdalene. She's a prostitute. We're to assume that when it, the Bible says sinful life, we're to assume that she was into sexual shenanigans, selling her body for cash. That's what she was doing. Um, and this person would have been absolutely ostracized from the community. They would have hated on her like you wouldn't believe. Similar similar to how we treat the marginalized in our community. It's not like hookers, prostitutes, or porn stars have like a really great standing in our community today. Do they? We all got judgment, my good people. We all got judgment. That's how it goes. Um, and so my point in saying that is this is a woman who knew walking into that house would not be welcomed. This is a woman who walked up that street, up that sidewalk, knocked on that door and came in probably scared to damn death of the people on the other side of that door. But she ignored her fear and went in anyways because she had someone she needed to meet. She had a desire deep within her to go meet Jesus, to go be near him, to be with him, to be next to him. And I love that picture. I love the picture of somebody marginalized and ostracized in that way and judged in that way, but yet has the same opportunity to go meet this guy that was doing nothing but loving on the good people. She also brought an alabaster uh, jar of perfume. Now, during the day, back in the day, this jar would have been, you know, it would have, you know, it would have been a little money invested into this alabaster jar with perfume. That's all there is to it. And I also tell people at this time that this perfume that she brought in that alabaster jar probably helped her make a living. It's not like back in the day, you know, everybody showered once a day like we do. So back in the day, she would have put on a little spritz and perfume to make herself smell good, make herself more attractive. So here she is bringing probably a piece of how she made her living into that room to give to Jesus, do something nice for him. So here she is in the middle of that room with her jar and her fear and her trepidation of all the idiots looking at her and judging on her. And it says, as she stood behind him, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. 
Back in the day, the women did not take their hair down in public. They certainly wouldn't have made an intimate display, nor a physical intimate display of even touching a man in public with their hair down like that. Needless to say, her emotionality at the time, crying, wiping up tears. I mean, this was a scene. Imagine all these highfalutin people that knew the Pharisees and that were all stuck on themselves and their egos and their pride and their position in life and their 401ks and all the bullshit that they came there with looking back at this woman most likely disgusted with what they were watching when the pharisee who had invited him talking about jesus saw what was going on he said to himself if this man were a prophet talking about jesus he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner simon the pharisee right A guy that's making judgments on your morality. A guy that's making big decisions on your community. A guy that's leading you in some kind of spiritual charge. Oh, that's a sinner. If Jesus would know that, he'd get rid of her. She's not worth anything. What's he doing? What's he doing? The next verse says, Jesus answered him. Right? So the scripture is clear. Like he said to himself. So this is Jesus reading the guy's mind. Freaks out. So just be careful. (laughs) Jesus is reading your mind. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Imagine Simon being like, oh boy. Tell me, teacher, he said. Jesus says, two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owned 50 denarii, which is 50 bucks, and the other other owed, I'm sorry, one owed 500 bucks and the other 50 bucks. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more. And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, yeah, you judge correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. Jesus turns toward the woman and says to Simon. So now Jesus eyeballs this woman that came up the driveway, came up the walkway, trembling, fearful of what was going to happen with all these eyeballs on him, but with one thing in her heart. And that was to Meet Jesus, not only where she was, but where Jesus was. To walk in and, and, and have the hope and, and the motivation to be able to, to collapse in the presence of love. So he's staring her in the face while he says this to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water from my feet, which would have been the tradition of the day to do. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, which also would have been the tradition. But this woman, from the time I have entered, has stopped kissing my feet, has not stopped kissing my feet. Imagine that, man. Imagine that. How would you react? Goes on to say, you did not put oil on my head, which also would have been the tradition of the day, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. But whoever has forgiven little, loves little. This isn't just simply about an act. I'm going to go in and cry on his feet, give him some perfume. It's not just simply about an act. This is, a, this is a moment where she is collapsing and letting go of not only who she is, but what she does. 
And she's looking at him, understanding that the bridge of love between us and God is not that damn big, not that damn high, and frankly, not that hard to get across. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Not an expression of, hey, all the suck things you've done, all the bad things. That's not it, man. Your sins are forgiven, meaning you are with me. You are with me. You are with me now. All that stuff that made you circle and swim in your own fear and shame and anger and ego and pride. That's done. That's done. You're with me now. And the other guests began to say amongst themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sin? Who is this guy that forgives sins? What is he thinking, forgiving sins? I just want to put that in your own life. You know, I think we all have that walk up the block, walk into the house moment, you know, where we find and we meet love. And if you haven't, I encourage you to have that moment. For me, one of those moments came when I met a woman named Danielle. And when I met this woman, she was electric. She was an electric personality. She, this, is, this is the way Danielle was. She'd go, hey, we're going to the moon. And you didn't not believe it. You know, in some regard, you'd look deep in her eyes and you'd go, man, she believes she's going to the moon. And then her literal personality, right, would be, would like tell you, oh yeah, she's, she's got the wherewithal to like build a rocket ship and like take this thing all the way to the end. But where I met Danielle in her life, she was a crack addict, a heavy, heavy crack addict. Danielle was adopted as a child and as a young child and young in her teenage years, she was sexually abused um, by people around that adoptive family. And that spun her out even more. Um, she was a Native American, um, and she was beautiful. And she was my one of my best friend's girlfriends at the time. And at the time I met her, she was still very much, very actively ingrained in the addiction of crack. And by the time that I had met her, she had been a prostitute. She had been in porn. She had been a stripper. She had just, you know, run from this, this life of abuse and non-attachment and just a horrible amount of situations that happened to her as a young woman, a young lady, a young girl. And sometimes suffering hits people very early in their lives. My three kids, for example, came out of the most horrific, abusive situations that you could possibly understand duct tape to chairs, eating money, eating coins. I mean, what? Eating coins to try to stay alive. So sometimes suffering meets us very early in our lives, and suffering met Danielle. And by the time she was an older teenager uh, rolling into her 20s, she had made up her mind that she was going to run, and she was going to run hard. And she ran hard into drugs. And you know what? Part of me says, absolutely. Part of me says, yeah, man, that's what happens. Part of me says, of course, that life was set up for that type of um, situation 
where she was going to be able to ignore and run from the pain that was happening in her soul and her mind and her body with all the tragedy and all the trauma. So I met her there. You know, I met her in that, in her mid to late 20s. And it wasn't pretty. And it, and it, 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 looked, it looked bad. You know, crack had taken a toll on her. Drugs had taken a, just a wicked turn on her. And she, you know, sought rehab after rehab after counselor after counselor after, you know, program NA and AA and every freaking A that you can imagine. And needless to say that everybody around you who knew her were constantly worried about what she did. And her MO was she'd get sober for a little bit. And then once she got sober, uh, she'd boom, she'd disappear for, you know, five days to 10 days most likely winding up um, in a crack house where she would use her body to feed her addiction. And I hope you understand what I'm saying there because there's a real picture of what that was. And so we worked with her as much as we possibly could. My family uh, wrapped our arms around her. Um, My best friend, of course, who was dating her at the time, wrapped his arms around her and would stop at literally nothing to help her. And, I mean, she taught my daughter how to tie shoes at one point. So at one point, we were really immersed in her life, her recovery, trying to help her out. And, listen, I'm talking about rehabs and cops and weird phone calls in the middle of the night and just all kinds of stuff. And every single time she would get sober and turn around and go back to use, part of you and part of your energy would get sucked out of you. You get really crazy hopeful for somebody like that who would emerge out of a program sober and look at you and go, this is it, I'm in. And then she would turn around and disappear and crack out for five to 10 days. And, and part of you would be like, shit, What's that? What, what the hell? What the hell's wrong with her? Why can't she get her shit together? And you'd get pissed. And for me, a couple times, that's where the all-in stopped. Look what we've done. How much more do we got to do? Do we got to keep going on this merry-go-round, on this crazy, vicious cycle of insanity every time she decides to use without really understanding what the hell was going on inside of her? Now, I also say that she loved God. Danielle loved God. I mean, crazy loved God. She very much loved that story of Luke 7, would often often talk about how she knew exactly what Mary was doing that night that she rolled into that house and fell down at Jesus' feet looking for hope and love, looking for belonging looking for the sorrow to come off her life. She would want to pray. She'd want to read the Bible. She'd want to go to Bible studies. She'd she'd church. She'd want to worship. She was in. She was in and just couldn't shake the suffering that a life like hers had produced. So by the time... We had gotten to um, Grand Rapids, Michigan, which was mid-2000s. Danielle had come with, and my best friend was living with us, and it was right uh, right before the adoption. I adopted kids, and you know, 11 years ago, uh, 2000, 
six-ish, seven-ish, somewhere in there. And we're all living in Grand Rapids, and, and Danielle came out of a rehab, and uh, um, she was doing good, man. And she came to Grand Rapids, and she was living with uh, this boyfriend, and, uh, and, and you know, it seemed like hope, right? You know, it seemed like hope, like, you know, three months of sobriety, and she got to know the kids, and um, she got to know the community that we were running with, and and uh, she could pick up jobs here and there, and you know her 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 color and her skin would come back, and her hair would look better, and she would start speaking a little bit more sanely and understanding things a little bit more clearly, and and you would get hope watching it. You would get hope watching it, and we had seen this before, though. So at some point, there was an arm's length relationship happening. Where we had embra- where I had embraced her, I'm not gonna say we, where I had embraced her, you know, very much, very intimately come into our lives. There had I had crossed a bridge somewhere in my mind where I was just gonna kinda keep an arm's length distance with her. Talk to her, have her come over, absolutely hang out with her. But at some point I was like, Man, the other shoe's gonna drop and this is gonna suck. And that and I'm telling you, that that's what happens. That's what happened to me. One day she calls me and says, hey, can I meet with you and hang out? I got something to tell you. I got this project that I've been thinking of, and I really, you know, I really want to know what you think. And she came over, and she hung out in the office. And for 30 minutes, man, she rolled out what she called Christian Street Intervention, which was a, a ministry that she wanted to do, particularly for the sex workers on the street, the women that were out on the street selling their bodies uh, for cash and or drugs or doing porn for whatever. And, and she was like, she was like, JR, I'm, I'm one of these women. I get them. I know them. I want to give them Bibles and hugs and love and help them and offer them, uh, you know, ways to get into treatment and, 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 and other facilities that will take them around the country. And believe me, Danielle knew this. She was a, an expert in, in, in facility. She was an expert in rehab. She, she knew where meetings were and, and, uh, and she was on fire and she wanted to do this. She wanted to love these women. She wanted to turn around and give the love that she had been receiving. And she was on fire for it. And part of me listened to this knowing that she was, you know, three, four, five months sober at the time, thinking, man, maybe this is just a little too quick. And she says, well, can you help? And at the time, I was running a pretty big ministry that, you know, there's only a couple of us running it, and there's just no way I had the resources or time to do it. But certainly, I had the energy to support her, encourage her, and... uh and, and let her know. And, but I also let her know that, hey, you need to relax a little bit too. You know, you, you need to focus on your recovery. You need to focus on, you know, just simply living day to day before you just hop into something else. But she was on fire, man. It was hard to stop. Well, she told me about the date, a date that she uh, wanted to do uh, an outreach. And she said, I've called the television stations, the radio stations, and the newspaper to meet me on this corner where I'm going to be doing this outreach. And they say they're coming. And I'm going down there. And I'm going down there to love on these girls. And, and uh, we were living in Grand Rapids at the time. And they, they, no shortage of prostitutes in Grand Rapids, believe me. No shortage of, uh, of uh, you know, areas of shenanigans in Grand Rapids, period. Doesn't matter the size of your city, yo. They're there. And uh, so there she went, off she went, the television camera showed up and shot her and the newspaper showed up and wrote about her. And that night, 11 o'clock news, there she was right off the bat, loving on these girls and talking to a reporter about how, you know, she used to be one of them and now I'm giving back and I'm helping them. And we're going to have a facility one day and, and, and 
just just incredible. You know, you felt a surge of pride, but yet it also, in the back of your mind, you're like, when's the other shoe going to drop? It's just what happens, man. The next part of the story gets hard. A day or two goes by and I hadn't heard from her, which was not uncommon. But my best friend calls me and says, hey, I need you to get in the truck. I need you to go downtown and I need you to look for Danielle. She hasn't been home since the night of the outreach. And right away, man, a huge pit in my gut like you wouldn't believe. I mean, just a pit. And I was like, absolutely. And I jumped in the truck, called a neighbor friend of mine. He jumped in there with me. I certainly wasn't going to go down there alone. And up and down the damn streets and alleys and every place we could think of uh, on that side of town, we went. And we were out there for a couple hours. Right before we were going to give up, all right, F this, let's go home. Uh, Got to a street corner, and there she was. And this was probably three days now after that outreach. And there she was in, the, in an alley with another man. And the first thing I saw was she was dirty. Her pants were filthy. Her jacket was like she had been rolling around on, on the ground. Her face was bruised. Her hair was a, she was a mess, just a mess. Color had run out of her face again. And, and it was just obvious what, what was going on. And I rolled the window down and I chased the guy away. And she just stood there looking at me, like right through me, man. Like right through me. Just not very conscious of what was going on. The drugs had completely taken over. And she was just out of it. And uh, I opened the door and she jumped in the back. And uh, it was really, really clear. And when she jumped in... And her sleeve went up on her uh, coat. I could see burn marks up and down her arm from the crack pipe. She had taken the crack pipe and taken the bowl part of the crack pipe and just burned her arms um, up and down her arms. And her face was dirty and bruised. And she was a mess. And it was horrible. It was horrible. And I got pissed. And I got pissed. And uh, she, you know, told us how she had been raped and how she'd, you know, been in this, you know, crack house and, you know, just horrible, horrible, horrific things that happened to her. And I, I said, well, you're going to the ER. So I spun her around and took her down to the hospital. In that drive, I said things I wasn't proud of. I'm not proud of that. I'm actually still ashamed of to this day. And I'm still working on getting over. I said things that at the time seemed right to me because the other shoe had dropped and I just couldn't understand it. I didn't, I didn't have much more empathy left. I didn't have much more mercy or grace left for the situation, this type of thing that was happening. And more than that, I was just damn afraid for her. And my fear came out stupid. We got to the ER and they took one look at her and they got it right away and off into a room she went and it came back out and got me, and my buddy sat in the ER, and I went back into the room with her. And they hooked her up and got her some fluids going, and uh, she was a mess, man. She's just an absolute mess. They got her into a gown, and she laying on the bed, and, and uh, 
she wrapped up into the fetal position and was rocking back and forth and wanted her mom and um, wanted to call her uh, wanted to call her uh, boyfriend and of course I had already kind of done that and said hey man we got her she's in the hospital and then um, and I told her you need to give up <laughs> you need to in some way let go of this addiction. But what I wasn't taking into account was the, the suffering that was going on in her life. I, I just, at, at some levels, man, there are people that are suffering out there that we just can't plug into and get the gauge of the amount of suffering. And that's just a fact. And the only way to do that is to really sit with somebody and to really understand people's backgrounds, what has happened to them. Ask those probing questions that release a lot of the bullshit that they carry around. And that wasn't the time that it was going to happen. I let her talk to her. Uh, I called uh, her boyfriend and got him on the phone, and they had a chat, and I stepped out of the room and came back in. And um, I was in there for probably a good hour, trying whatever the hell I could to make it better. And it was not going to be better. It just wasn't going to be. And uh, again, like my cadence in the room was like, yo, you got to get your shit together. You're going to die if you don't get your shit together. And in hindsight, I wish I would have just let her know that I was always going to be there, regardless of how many damn times this had to happen. So it came came time for me to say goodbye because I had to get back, deal with my family, and Dave was on his way, my best friend. And uh, we said our goodbyes, and I grabbed my buddy, and off we went back to my house. Went home, explained to my wife what was going on, and and uh, of course I had been you know kind of chatting with her on the phone, and and it was just tragic, and you know there were some prayers said, and some just some conversations had, and but again there was that arm's length thing, man. Like what the hell? How many times are we going to do this? I went back down to my office. And a couple, three hours later, the phone rings and it's Dave and he's, he's sobbing and, and he's, um, he's crying and hard for him to get words out, breathing very hard. And I'll never forget this conversation. He said, once he could calm down, he said, she hung herself in the ER, in her room, with the coaxial cable that plugs in to the television set. And she hung herself just long enough. And the cable was just strong enough to cut the air out, just long enough to go brain dead. Her body is breathing, but she's brain dead. And the doctors don't think that, you know, she's coming back. So I, of course, immediately jumped in the truck and, and went down there and co- I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. And by the time I got down there and she had been taken to another room and she was hooked to more damn machines than you can imagine. And then almost 20, 28 days, somewhere in there later, she died of an infection. Um, 
for 20 plus days, we sat in that room every single day and were completely shocked and speechless over what had, at what had happened. Devastated. We buried her. We did a funeral. Her, her folks came. People came and got to say goodbye um, before she passed. And it was a life, um, a tragic end to a tragic life, frankly. For me, for many years after that, I literally thought I killed her. I literally thought that my ambivalence to the situation had helped push her over the edge. And I carried that weight like, like, a, like a freaking building on top of me every day. I looked at myself with disgust. What do you do? Why couldn't you help that? And it took a few people with professional degrees <laughs> to help me dig out of that understanding to the understanding that I have today which is it's 100% tragic and there's nothing I'm not going to make this story good the story isn't good it's not a good story it's a story though that requires me to really understand who I'm looking at every single day when someone comes into my life it's a story that requires me to look back Mary and understand how and why she fell at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes, maybe when we get up and leave the feet of Jesus, bad shit still happens. You know, we, don't, we don't get to know the end of Mary's story. And perhaps Mary went back to her community and kept doing what she was going to do. But she had the love of God if she did that. But for me, man, I have to think about it like really, truly, how am I meeting you? How am I meeting the people in my life? How am I taking myself into your life? Am I staying open to your story? Am I staying empathetic and loving and embracing and forgiving and mercy-filled and grace-filled with your story? And mine as well. And mine as well. Am I pointing that finger back at me and forgiving myself? There's not a day that goes by that I don't think of her. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't look back at the faces around me. And I don't try to discover your story and who you are. So be all in. Who's around you that needs your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy? And the stories don't have to be as extreme as Danielle's to get it. But I'm hoping you see it. I'm hoping that you step into your life every day with your largest priority being all in on people, not your bank accounts, 
or your status or your prestige or your judgments about culture, your political ideation, your dogmas, process, and methodology, your religiosity, your ego, and your pride, but your willingness to be all in in forgiveness, mercy, and grace. Good people, I appreciate you listening to the story. If you need me, I'm JR, JR at JRMan.com. The website's got all the information on it. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.